plans for my crazy day. My packed commute. All those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. You are Locked On Jets, your daily podcast on the New York Jets. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is the Locked On Jets podcast on this Thursday, the 20th of April in the year 2017. I am John B. from gangreennation.com. Nice to have you with us. If you like this show, subscribe to it. You have two options. You can do iTunes. You can do Audio Boom, whichever you like better, and we'll make life super simple for you. We'll deliver the show to your device each day. You can take us with you and listen at your leisure whenever you want to. If you really like this show, please give it a good rating. helps us out. We certainly appreciate it. The draft is just one week away. How about that? Um, we are just a week away from the Jets uh, making picks that will either excite the fan base, make the fan base angry, maybe a little of both, maybe it'll be divided. Hopefully no more draft day blunder videos. Hopefully nothing, no, no new additions to any draft blunder videos that currently exist. And uh, today, of course, the NFL schedule also comes out tonight. We talked about that in yesterday's show. My opinion that it is the most overrated day of the NFL year. You may disagree. That's fine. Um, today, though, is Thursday, and on Thursday, uh, we do mailbag. Uh, we, you send me your questions. I do my best to answer them. So I got an email, and then we had some questions in the comment section of gangreennation.com. So why don't we jump straight in? And this first question was emailed to me. It was about the safety position. There's a lot of talk about the Jets taking a quarterback with the sixth pick to create a buzz. How about the Jets grabbing Hooker and Peppers? They may have to trade up for Peppers, but it would make for an exciting defense, instant secondary. And you know something? I actually misread this. I think the first time, because I think you were asking about Hooker and Peppers as viable options at six. I think instead what you're asking for is if the Jets take Hooker with the sixth pick and then trade back into the first round to take Jabril Peppers. Um, you know, I am not. I don't know how wild I am about the idea of the Jets trading up for Peppers after they've already taken Hooker. And here's why, is this is an excellent safety draft. It's a really high-end safety class. You have a lot of talented players who will not just be there at six, but a lot of good guys will be there in the second, maybe the third round. So double dipping is fine. I just wouldn't trade up to grab Pepper. I do like Pepper. If Pepper's falls to the second round, I think it's he's a guy who's worth a pick. I think he's a guy with a lot of talent. But you've got, you know, in the first round at six, you've got two, two really good options who could potentially be there. Maybe not. Maybe they'll be picked ahead of you in Jamal Adams and Malik Hooker. But past that, you have Peppers, you have Melon Thonwoof, I believe that's how you pronounce it, from UConn. You have Baker from Washington. You have you know, lots of good guys. Josh Jones, NC State, lots of good guys. And, you know, it's funny is the guy at the top, Malik Hooker, is probably the least versatile of the top uh, safety picks. You know, he's the guy, he's one of the two guys you could see going at six, and a lot of the other guys who are rated lower, who are still very good prospects, potential day two prospects, or better, are more can do more. They bring more to the table, and 
I th- one of the things I think that's funny about the safety position in the NFL is people have this perception that there are two different types of safety. And I think a lot of it may have to do with the way the Seattle Seahawks play defense. The Seahawks have been the dominant defensive team of this era in the NFL. I think it's fair to say that. And they have safeties with very defined roles. You have Earl Thomas, who plays the deep middle, and you have Cam Chancellor, who does a lot, but really more often than not is operating as kind of a de facto linebacker, plays close to the line in the box. Um, And... I think people get this idea that there are two types of safeties. There's the, the deep center fielder, and then there's the guy you play in the box. And this is something I this is something I, I kind of come to the realization that that's not really the case. I've personally only come to that realization late, late, later in the game, where safety is a position where you really desire versatility. You want your guy to be able to do a little bit of everything because it makes life more difficult on a quarterback if you have two guys on the field who can line up pretty much anywhere. If you have a guy, and that requires you being able to do all the tasks effectively, lining up that deep in the deep uh, middle middle spot, lining up closer to the line, covering a running back man-to-man, covering a tight end man-to-man. Maybe you're really good, you can cover a slot receiver man-to-man. And that, that adds a lot to your defense if you have a safety who can just drop into the slot, you know, covering a short zone, contributing contributing against the run, having enough range to disguise where you're going, maybe line up closer to the line and then drop deep and still be able to get there and play it effectively. Really confuse them. Line up deep, drop short, maybe play a robber position, maybe move, close, maybe take somebody man-to-man, disguise what you're doing. And that's really what you need in the NFL. And a guy like Hooker is kind of an anomaly, I think. Everybody talks about that deep center fielder. And, yeah, look, if you can play it like Ed Reed or Earl Thomas, you have value. That's But I think you have to be – you kind of have to be that great to be able to, to just be a specialist as a safety. And Hooker's got a shot to be that good. I mean, I, I, I don't love – got to be honest with you, I hate it when – people do player comparisons and you compare a guy to a first ballot hall of famer as, as is being done with hooker because it, you just set unrealistic expectations. You know, Ed Reed's one of the greatest safeties who's ever played. So I, I don't love that idea. Um, so I don't love the idea that hookers being compared to him, but hooker has a unreal range and B unreal ball skills considering how much, in, how little experience he has playing the safety position. I mean, he's, already a plus guy there and if as he gains more experience you have to think he's going to get even better now the deal the problem with hooker is that yeah, i mean it's as good as he is against the uh pass he is that bad against the run i mean and that's not an exaggeration that's not an expression he is brutal against the run but that may be due to inexperience if he gets more experience can he be at least get to passable against the run well maybe uh, but you know he's actually the type of guy who just might be good enough in that deep center field role that you don't do anything else with him. So that that's, you know, a guy you think about who, who could be worth a pick that high because there's a lot of value to a guy who allows your corners to only have to play the boundary because they know if anybody goes inside, Hooker's got them covered. So, but in an ideal world, you'd like a guy who's a safety, who's versatile, unless you're getting somebody who's just going to be a superstar center fielder. You got to have, have versatility. You know, you think about the lack of versatility, how that hurts Calvin Pryor with the Jets. And one of the reasons I think you have to be down on Pryor is people say, well, you can't stick him in that deep center field role. You can't stick him in that deep zone. Well, that's a real problem if I can't do that with a safety. That's a huge problem. 
And the problem is that Pryor's not really that great at anything else. He's not really a great man-to-man cover guy. So what do I have to do? I have to hide him in a short zone all the time. He's not even that great against the run. He's not that, you know. So I think that that's one of the things that has to concern you a little bit about Pryor. Well, not even, not a little bit. That's one of the things that has to concern you about Pryor. And that brings me to my last point before we move to our next question is, you know, I've heard this idea that you take Hooker because he fits better with Pryor. Pryor has shown me he's so limited that I can't build, I can't rearrange my plans around him. Now, look, um, it might be that there's no safety worth taking, and Pryor just happens to be the best guy I have to run out there week one. Okay, well, that's fine, but I'm not going to pass on a talent like a Jamal Adams just to accommodate Calvin Pryor, because Pryor hasn't shown me enough to make me think he belongs back there. Anyway, so I've going on and on about safety. To answer your question, um, I can see double dipping at safety. I mean, I think one of the things I love when the team does is when it addresses a position multiple times early and says, you know what, we are taking this weakness and we are turning it into one of our strengths for the next eight to 10 years. I would not trade up though for Peppers. If Peppers falls to round two, I think he's worth a look. So that anyway, that's our uh, next question. Deals with trading up or down in the draft. When trading up or down in the draft, how closely do teams adhere to the point value of each draft pick? So, for example, if the Jets were to trade their number six picks to the Redskins, would the Jets receive close to an equal point value with picks in return? Now, I think you are referring to the point chart that Jimmy Johnson made famous, the uh, former Cowboys coach. Later on, he was with the Dolphins, but he's known best for his work with the Cowboys. And I, I would have to guess that each team kind of has its own chart. Now, I, I have to think when Johnson was... Um, first camp coming up with this chart you know it, it was an interesting idea and it was something kind of new putting a value on each pick but i'm not sure johnson was necessarily scientific and say what his approach and it's you know it was it's a it's better than nothing because you know you just you go into the store and you come up off the top of your head all right well this is what i'm willing to pay for a gallon of milk that's fine but that's different from uh you know really sitting down thinking about your budget thinking about what you need what else you need on your grocery list and uh, determining exactly how much that milk is worth to you. And I, I, so I don't think there was a lot of detail. I don't think Johnson was very scientific in terms of assigning these points. So I don't, I'm not sure every team is operating under the Johnson point system. I think front offices have gotten smarter, more scientific. And I'd imagine each team has its own sort of valuation, uh, you know, has its own chart. Um, and I would have to imagine that for smart teams, at least, this is my, my own just thinking out loud, is your chart also, your values also have to vary based on the draft class there is. You know, if I'm if I have the sixth pick, let's say, and I'm the Jets, the sixth pick is more valuable in a year where I have graded the, that there are six elite superstar level prospects than in a year where... I think there are 10 because if there are six, then I'm going to, if there are only six, then that means if I trade down from six, I'm probably not getting one of them. Whereas if there are 10, I can trade down, add some more picks and still get a superstar level prospect. And the same thing go, same concept goes later in the draft. If I think it's a deep draft class and I'm going to be able to get an extra, you know, a good player, good chance. I'm going to get a good player in the fourth round. um, Then I'm going to be more apt to trade down and add an extra fourth round pick you know, maybe I'll trade down in the first or second round, add an extra fourth round pick. That fourth round pick is worth more to me than a year where I don't think the draft class is deep. And 
I don't think there's a good chance of getting a good player in the fourth round. So I think each team probably has its own valuations, and it's based on a number of uh, different things. So I would imagine that teams... I don't think teams adhere to the Jimmy Johnson chart that you see posted online. Um, but I, I think teams do have like their do have their own sense of value, and they it's probably much more detailed than it was than the charts you see online, which is kind of a replica of the Jimmy Johnson chart. Next question is about the wide receiver from Washington, John Ross, and it's a simple one, simple couple questions. Do you like him? Do you think he'd be a good fit? Would you take him at six? Ross, of course, broke the record, or you know the the modern. I don't even know it's the modern record. Some some. Whatever record, whatever record Chris Johnson had um, with his 40-yard dash time at the Combine, I've been saying since the Combine, it's almost I almost feel like that's going to be used unfairly negative against him because a lot of people who are kind of more casual observers are just going to see that and think, well, people only like Ross because of his 40 time. And that's not fair because I actually I do like Ross. I think he I, And I do think he'd be a good fit because Ross isn't just a guy who runs really fast. Ross is a guy who knows how to use his speed, I think. He's a good route runner, and I think one of the things that impresses me about him is early on in his uh, routes, early on in your routes, what you're trying to do is you're trying, trying to fake the corner out. And I don't want to get too technical, but you're kind of using anything you can, you know, your body movements, your false steps, your feet, your head, your your essentially what you're trying to do is get your corner get the corner turned in the wrong direction and then blow past them so you're kind of trying if you're if you're going outside and running down the sideline you're trying to fake inside and get your corner get the corner off balance make him lean inside and then you run past him if you're going inside you're trying to make the corner think you're going outside of him make him miss you know use your body to kind of make him miss in that way um so and the best thing you can do is get the corner's hips pointed in the wrong direction so if you were going outside down the sideline you want to make a move that makes the corner turn his hips inside toward the towards the quarterback if you're going if you're running release inside of the corner you what you want to do is make fake him out and make his hips facing toward the sideline because then he gets off balance and then to recover he you know he has to get to to recover by the time he's recovered you've blown past him especially if you have great speed like Ross. And I hope that's clear. And I think Ross does that very well. So I think Ross is the type of guy who, I think he's a guy who could be an outside receiver in the NFL. And, you know, it's a, lot, a lot of guys that size um, are not great outside receivers just because they aren't big enough. But I think Ross can use his speed to be successful there like a couple other guys. You know, you can think of some smaller speed receivers. Each strength you have, compensates for a weakness see if I, if you've got a big receiver like mike williams he doesn't need to be as fast because he doesn't need to separate from the defender he doesn't need to get a step on the defender because you can throw him up you can just throw the ball up to him when he's covered and he can win a ball well a guy like ross can create separation because not only is he fast but he's a good route runner so he creates he can create a yard or two of separation and that means he doesn't have to be as big because he doesn't need to win jump balls he can create his own separation and get open that way would i take him at six you know, I'm not sure he's worth the sixth pick. I, I, the way I see it is, you know, there are some picks out there where you're just like, what is the team doing? There's no way that guy's worth it's worth the sixth pick. And there are other picks where you can say, you know what, I don't think he's worth the sixth pick, but I can understand why the, why the Jets would think that he's worth it. And if the Jets pick Ross, I'll be more in the latter. Is that, if it's up to me, am I taking Ross at six? No. But do I think Ross is 
good do i see enough in ross where i can understand why the jets would take him at six yes i do so i think that's i think that so that's my best answer to that question next question about performance enhancing drugs jets now have three players suspended for peds in as many weeks doesn't seem like the Jets management has done anything to prevent future performance enhancing drug use. What is your analysis? Do the Jets have a performance enhancing drug problem or not? Um, well, you mentioned three players. I think that the Jets have three players suspended, but I think only two of them are prefer- for performance enhancing drugs. Drugs. They're Jalen Marshall and uh, Nick Marshall. Uh, the third player who's suspended right now is Austin Stafari and Jenkins, and. He was suspended for uh, an off-the-field incident that happened before he came to the Jets, not for performance-enhancing drugs. Um, in terms of are the Jets responsible, I think you've. I think that this is a case of uh, correlation without causation. Um, I, I don't think that there's anything you can uh, do. To, I mean, it's just the Jets happen to have two guys who have been suspended. That doesn't mean that the team has a problem. It doesn't mean the team's encouraging anything. I think you, the burden of proof is to show how the Jets are involved. And I don't think that there's, a, there's, I don't think you have any evidence outside of something that's just a coincidence. And I mean, jokingly, I might say, my God, if the Jets are cheating, my God, that if that if you saw that team last year, I really hope that wasn't the team cheating because my God. Um, so no, I, I don't think this is a Jets problem. Um, what do you think of the reports? The Jets are really trying to trade down. And is there, and there's even a report that Jets and Browns are trading with the Jets trading down to the 12th pick. Um, you know, I'm not really an insider. Um, if you followed my writings long enough, you know, that is I'm not really a guy who breaks news. I'm just a guy who more, I break down what I break down what happens. I don't I don't break news. I break things down. I tell you what happened, why it happened. I don't tell you what you know. I, I don't break news. So yeah, but you know, you do this long enough, you develop a few connections, and I'm, like I said, I'm a guy that doesn't break news. And even I got people I know telling me the Jets. Everybody, everybody I know who everybody who works with the Jets is telling, making it known that they want to trade down. So. I mean, even I'm getting this news. Even I'm, even I know that these rumors are happening. Um, Tony Pauline, you know, uh, Tony Pauline, who we had on our, as a guest a little while back, mentioned that he heard the Jets were looking to trade down and draft Pat Mahomes, and that's something I've heard also. So I think there's something to that. I think the Jets need to trade down more often than they trade up in this draft. I think they need to leave this draft with more picks than they enter because they just have so many holes. Now about this particular rumor, there's some question about whether the Jets are going to be able to acquire if they trade down and it's I guess it's a difference of opinion where the Jets want the 33rd pick the first pick in the second round the Browns want to give them the 52nd pick to trade down from 6 to 12 and for me that particular trade if we're talking specifics I would need the 33rd pick for me to justify it to drop out of the top 10 in this draft from 6 all the way to 12 I think you need at least the 33rd pick for this reason is at the sixth pick, and this goes back to something we were talking about a little earlier, you've got a really great shot of getting a player who has superstar potential and a high ceiling. I'm sorry, and a high floor, which means he's a safe pick. You, you know that odds are this guy's going to at least be a solid player, and that's, the Jets need to hit on that pick. You go down to 12 in this draft, you still have a chance to get a good player, but, but maybe not a superstar player, and maybe a guy who's a little riskier, and that's the reason he goes 12 instead of uh, top six. Now... 
is the is that drop off worth it if I get the 33rd pick? Well, yeah, because the 33rd pick is one of the best value picks in any draft because of the amount, the dollar amount, and because of the quality players still on the board. So if I can add that pick, I think it's worth dropping from six to twelve. I don't think it's worth dropping to fifty-two. Yeah, just just for the fifty-second pick, I don't think it's worth dropping from six from six to twelve in that sense. So that's uh, those are my answers to that question. Next question: If the Jets were able to draft Miles Garrett, what effect do you see it having on the defense? Well, here's how I view football. I think there, there, this takes me back to one of the ways I think you view football is what you want are players who either force the defense to use an extra guy to deal with them or who force you to use less people to deal with them. And, you know, I think about Darrell Reeves. You want to, cre- you want to create two-on-ones in your favor, essentially, or, you know, take away two-on-ones that you have to deal with. And by that, so Darrell Reeves is an example. Reeves in his prime, you could stick him one-on-one against any receiver in the game. You could stick him against Randy Moss, you know, the great Randy Moss, one-on-one. Most teams to stop Randy Moss needed to use two people. So the fact I can use Revis one-on-one with him essentially frees up, a, frees up another guy to do something else, whether it's blitz the quarterback, whether it's to double-team the number two receiver, roll coverage, clog the passing lane, you know, add an extra guy over the top. It, it just adds an extra guy, you know, gives you an extra guy to play with. If I've got, you know, a great left tackle like a Joe Thomas – I can neutralize a great edge rusher. Maybe you know, normally you need at least two guys to neutralize a great edge rusher. Joe Thomas allows that guy to go out in a pattern to block somebody else, do something like that. Great edge rusher, on the other hand, usually forces the defense to use two people to block him. So that in that case, he's creating a two-on-one in your kind of in your favor. And that's something Garrett would do. And I think Garrett would be particularly dynamic on this defensive line because you've got Leonard Williams. You're hoping Muhammad Wilkerson returns to form. Maybe you've got Sheldon Richardson. That means a really good player. You add Garrett there off the edge, that means a really good player and multiple really good players on a lot of plays are going to get one-on-one matchups that they're going to win. So, you know, there are only so many guys who can stay in the block. If you want to leave that many extra guys into block, that means the offense has less receivers it can put out into patterns. So you impact things that way. So, you know, you want to double-team Wilkerson? Well, that means Garrett's one-on-one. You want to double team Garrett? It means Wilkerson's one on one. You can't. You want? What do you do with Leonard Williams? Are you double teaming Leonard Williams? Is he going one? Somebody's going. Somebody, a really good player, is going one on one as a pass rusher, and that means the Jets are going to win a lot of those battles. So that's what Garrett can do. They don't. They lack that edge rusher. You know, they have a bunch of interior type guys. They need. Um, you know, but adding an edge rusher like Garrett would allow guys they can stick out wide who could command double teams. If he didn't command double teams, he'd have a lot of advantages. And if he did command double teams, other guys like Wilkerson and Williams would have advantages a lot. Tell me about a guy, a non-quarterback, that maybe not a lot of people are talking about that you think could become a great Jet. What is it that you like about him? How does he fit in with what's already here? Does he enhance other aspects of our unit, or do we, or does what we ha- already have in place set him free to do his thing? You know a guy I really like who doesn't get a – He's getting, you know, he's getting more and more buzz as we're entering the draft period, as we're getting closer to the draft. But uh, the guy from Temple, Hassan Reddick, and I'm not sure he's going to be a guy the Jets pick at six, but I'll tell you, I wouldn't be shocked to see him ultimately go in the top ten. I really like him. Um, you know, you've heard from people, I've heard from people I trust that he he played a lot, he played kind of all over. He did a lot of different things at Temple. 
He was a defensive lineman. He spied at times. He apparently looked really good at the Senior Bowl, looked very natural playing off-ball linebacker at the Senior Bowl. He could kind of do it all. Whenever I was watching him, it didn't seem like anybody could ever block him just with just one guy. He was a guy who created those two-on-ones, were eating up two, three blockers, freeing up other guys to do things. Um, I kind of view him as an off-ball linebacker in the pros who does a little bit of everything, who you know, plays the run, drops into coverage, and then blitzes some. There are other people he who view him as more of an edge rusher. You know, it's it's up to your individual interpretation, but I think he could bring a lot to this defense. I think he can do a little bit of everything and help uh, help the you know help the Jets be that type of uh, three down linebacker that is so important in today's NFL. So that's 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 a guy who comes to mind for me. Next question is about the offensive line. Do you agree with the idea that the offensive line is terrible? I personally think the Jets have a fairly average, not terrible line. In your mind, how much can a weak offensive line be protected and covered up? Do you agree or disagree that the quote-unquote weak offensive line should keep the Jets from drafting Fournette or a quarterback, for that matter? In reference to the idea that teams should build their offensive line and then add a quarterback and weapons all of the Cowboys. I'm not sure I'd say the offensive line is terrible, but I don't think that this is a great offensive line. I think it's an offensive line that has a lot of question marks and needs an awful lot to go right to be a good offensive line. You know, if there are a lot of ifs that have to go right and maybe too many to reasonably expect that this is going to be a strength. I think it's much more likely this offensive line is a weakness than a strength because you need a lot of things. You know, you want to go in with a few question marks. What question marks does Dallas have on the offensive line? Now, what question marks do the Jets have? Jets questions. Can Brandon Shell step up? Um, can Kelvin Beecham regain his old form a year further removed from his injury? What can Wesley Johnson do? I mean, I keep hearing people talk Wesley Johnson up. I mean, he really wasn't that good last year. Um, really struggled. I mean, you can't allow you can't allow pressure up the middle at the, the rate the Jets did. I mean, anytime somebody threw a stunt at him, they were in trouble, and that, that's a real issue. Can Brian, the lesser questions, can Brian Winters keep his form? Winters is the sure thing right now, and that's a guy with really three quarters of a good year under his belt. So you got a lot of questions up there. Um, the question, should, should you wait for the quarterback? Look, there are only so many good quarterbacks out there. You get a chance to take them. You have to do it. You can't, you can't, you don't have that luxury. That's a luxury you don't, you don't have in the NFL to say, we're going to wait till the offensive line is built up to have a quarterback. Quarterback's available. You got to take him. Um, should the offensive line keep the team from drafting a back like Fournette? I mean, that's that makes no sense to me. If anybody, you if you don't have a great offensive line, that means you need a good back. Any any back can get yardage that an offensive line blocks. You need if you don't have a great offensive line, you need a back who can rip off his own yardage. The way you cover for you, know, you part of the question was how do you compensate for not having a good offensive line? It's by the quarterback making smart adjustments to the protection. It's in showing pocket presence, stepping up when there's an outside rush, moving within the pocket, and it's in the back, it's in the back creating his own yardage. I mean, how, how do you think, if you don't have a good offensive line, the answer is not not the answer is not having a bad running back and quarterback. The answer is having good players at other positions who can compensate for it. So you know, I, I don't agree with that idea at all. Next question deals with the draft. Can you come up with the position groups where there isn't a better prospect on the board than currently starting for the draft? 
I can only come up with the defensive line and maybe offensive guard and center. Even these dubious quarterback prospects look better than a 45-year-old Josh McCown and Petty Hack Express. And 45-year-old Josh McCown is this listener's words, not mine. I know McCown is not 45. And he points out O.J. Howard's better, better than tight ends. Fournette's better than running backs. Lattimore's better than corners. Reuben Foster's better than linebackers. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Wesley Johnson's better than the centers in this. I don't think it's a good center class, but I think, you know, the kid from Ohio State's probably going to be a better center than Johnson. Um, yeah, defensive line and guard. And even guard, I mean, I'm not saying the Jets should draft a guard, but I think Forrest Lamp, that uh, the kid from Western Kentucky, he's going to be a better guard than, I think ultimately he's a better guard than Carpenter or Winters. I think really defensive line might be the only place you'd go. But now that said, you also have to remember that the top player at his position in each draft is probably projected to be a star. So you got to consider that. Now, I'm not saying the Jets roster is in good shape, but I think there are a lot of teams where, you know, the uh, the best player at his position in that class is going to be an upgrade over what you have because unless you have a star at a position, odds are a first-round pick who hits is probably going to be better. Um. Let's move on to our next questions about the quarterback position. What traits do you look for when evaluating quarterbacks? This is a long, and then this uh, listener goes on to some detail about his own views, and it's never just one or two things. If it was, everyone would get it right most of the time, but we have a set of skills we value over others. What are your tells? And this person spells it out, and he kind of answers my question because I look for a lot of the same things. So let's just go through what he says. Uh, one thing I need to see is anticipatory throws, especially those through traffic in the middle of the field. When I see those kinds of throws, I know the guy understands the coverage he's reading against he's against, and how to beat it. When I see these throws in the middle of the field, i.e. over backers and under safeties, I know he also acutely understands his own guy relative to the defense. Another, another trait I like is eye manipulation. Can you look off coverages and set up your throws? Basically, I like gamer skills. One trait I've come to put less stress on is progressions. To me, it seems like the best quarterbacks separate from the pack by getting their first read right most of the time. They tend to get the ball out quickly. I prefer guys that can check to the right play than those who can mindlessly accept the call after it comes in and run through progressions. And how do you weight winning? Hard to say it doesn't matter when most of us rank the pros according to the rings. It's certainly not the all and all, but it's certainly not nothing either. So a lot to chew on. Yeah, I think eye manipulation's big. Anticipatory throws are big. I, I agree with you on those. Um... I don't put a ton of weight on winning. I think we've seen through the years that winning in college does not necessarily equate to winning in the pros. I think there are certain intangibles you need in your quarterback, and people view those through in the context of this guy was a winner in college, but those don't always translate to the pros. Something I look for more, and this was something that I kind of like about Deshaun Watson, is people point out his game against Alabama, and I don't think that's a big deal. I mean, Tim Tebow beat Alabama. Johnny Manziel beat Alabama. What I liked about Watson is if you watch that game, Watson took a pounding in this year's championship game, and he just kept coming. It didn't phase him, and that's something you need in the NFL. You need to be able to take a pounding and then not have you take you off your game, be able to stay with your game, because not every quarterback can do that. Not every quarterback can shake off taking a physical pounding like the way Watson did. I mean, our old friend Mark Sanchez, we know he's a very flawed quarterback, but if everything was working for him and his offensive line was protecting him, he hit a few passes early— you know, you actually had a pretty good shot of, get, of Sanchez playing a really good game. Where, where Sanchez struggles when he started getting hit early, and that kind of took him out of his game. You know, you need to be able to shake it off when things don't go well, because adversity is a big part of playing quarterback. 
particularly as a rookie, because every single rookie has games where they just look awful. And you got to shake off the criticism from the fans and the media, and you got to uh, put put bad games behind you. So that's important. Another thing I'd point to is just how you manip- how you manage pressure. You got to be able to handle throwing under pressure in the pros. Um, you know, Kevin Cobb. If if it was just about throwing with a clean pocket, Kevin Cobb could be a great quarterback. So that's another thing that uh, comes to mind. I, I, I think if a guy can go through his progressions, that means something to me. But the problem is today's college offense, you don't really see that that much. And I do think there's something to, you know, maybe not dismissing a guy just because he's throwing his first read all the time. Now, that's something you need to learn. But, again, a guy like Watson, he threw his first read a lot, but that's because his first read was open most of the time. So, I mean, you can't, you're going to really knock the guy for that. You know, if the guy's open, you got to throw him the ball. You can't just knock a guy because he's not throwing to the first. You know, he's not go, not because he you know he's going to a second or third option when the first guy's open. You, know, you, you can't do that. Another thing is throwing it to tight windows. Can you fit it in there? Can you put the ball on time? That deals with anticipation also. But you know, Watson's back shoulder throw, and I, I mean, I'm not the. I keep phrasing Watson. Um, you know, I'm not totally sold on Watson, but the, those are things that I like about Watson. Um. So that, that's you know that that's my answer to that one. Next question, Josh Gordon, John, you legend. Well, thank you. What are your thoughts about a possible trade with Cleveland for their troubled receiver, Josh Gordon? The trade can be part of a package in a trade down scenario in the first round of the 2017 draft. There is any plausible scenario you can think of. I, I wouldn't trade anything for Gordon. The guy has not. I mean, the guy was great in 2013, but that was four years ago. The guy's barely played since then. Um. I just don't know what what you expect to get out of him, and especially now on a team like the Jets. Look, I mean, maybe I'd take him if he got cut, and I had a strong veteran locker room where you could maybe get through to the guy. But what's the point? I mean, the guy never plays, so I mean, I, I wouldn't touch him, especially a team starting from scratch like the Jets. I mean, maybe from a winning team, stable culture, good locker room where you can kind of teach him. Okay, well that's one thing, but I mean, I'm not doing that for the. Uh, I'm not doing that for uh, the Jets team that's uh, starting over. Anyway, so the, thank you so much for your questions. I got to all of them that were uh, posted by the time we recorded this show. So then thanks again. And anybody who left them a little late, well, try them again next week. Um, this has been the Locked on Jets podcast. I am John B. from gangreennation.com. You can subscribe to the show, either iTunes or Audio Boom. Give it good ratings if you would. Until next time, I hope you have a wonderful day, everybody. Is democracy in danger or decline? Condoleezza Rice, William Galston, and Carlos Gutierrez and others take on this question in the fall edition of The Catalyst, a journal of ideas from the Bush Institute. Surveys show Americans place less trust in institutions like the media and business. Others contend America has faced far more challenging periods and emerged strong. Leading policymakers, Bush Institute experts, and respected journalists take on this debate. Read about it at bushcenter.org catalyst.